This is Fortune's Wheel, the podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 18, a bonus episode, So the Dead Shall Not Rise. Thank you for tuning in to our third episode in a short series throughout the last week of October, where we take a look at some of the creepier accounts left to us from the medieval period. Over the last two millennia, people around the world have obsessed over the idea of their deceased kin rising from their graves each night. The intentions of the risen dead were mixed, depending on the community sharing these stories. But one thing is clear. For most people experiencing it, One was to never approach these abominations. In fact, one was to stay inside if one could at all help it. Today, we talk zombies. Though folks in medieval Europe wouldn't have called them that. The term zombie wouldn't be recorded until 1819, having come from the merging of Christian and African beliefs and spiritual practices during the time of African enslavement in the Americas between the 1500s and the mid-1800s. But make no mistake, the idea of the zombie, the dead who rise, the undead, is an ancient one. We will delve briefly into the history of the undead and seek to understand the fact that the medieval mind lived in a world very much shrouded in magic and mystery and terror. As we've seen on the podcast before, Anything was possible, and among them were rotting, decomposed corpses emerging from the soil in the dead of night. I hope you enjoy the show. During the Middle Ages, disease was the biggest killer of all people. These illnesses brought death in a variety of ways. Dysentery resulted from either a parasite or waterborne bacteria, and it brought about bloody stool, vomiting, severe cramps, and fever. Without proper hydration to flush the system, the very water in which the pathogen was probably introduced to the body, it could certainly prove fatal. Malaria is neither a virus nor a bacteria. It's actually caused by a plasmodium, which are found in the blood of various creatures and attacks the liver. With a mosquito being the primary vector of transmission, malaria causes high fever, fatigue, vomiting, and severe headaches. Malaria is most, mostly found in tropical and subtropical regions. However, in times of natural warming periods, such as the medieval warming period, Signs and records of it can be traced further north and south of its normal areas. Diphtheria, caused by a bacteria called Corinobacterium diphtheriae, which produces a toxin that results in respiratory problems, oxygen absorption, heart failure, paralysis, and most definitely death. Typhoid, or typhoid typhoid fever as it is also known, is very often found in places where sanitation takes a backseat to other concerns because clean drinking water is scarce. Typhoid is a bacteria in the Salmonella family that causes death 
through a combination of high fever, diarrhea, and vomiting, which lead directly to uncontrollable and severe dehydration. Leprosy, today called Hansen's disease, is caused by a bacteria that mainly affects the skin and the nervous system, but it can cause death when found in the upper respiratory system. It's also known to cause blindness when it travels to the eyes. It's worth noting that lepers were once seen as curses and abominations, and though destitute more times than not, they were shunned and ostracized by the community. Smallpox. Smallpox is a common one we hear in our history classes when talking about the arrival of the Spanish in Mexico and the expansion of the United States into native lands across North America. However, smallpox didn't appear out of nowhere. The reason it was so deadly to those in the Americas is because it was a very common disease throughout Africa, Europe, and elsewhere prior to 1492. Smallpox, a more serious cousin to the chickenpox, is caused by one of two viruses, variola major or variola minor. Smallpox has one purpose. It attacks a person's immune system, specifically attacking the parts of our cells that are meant to block viral replication. In short, it overwhelms the system and clouds out normal body functioning at the cellular level, thus resulting in death more times than not. Whether you're talking about the stomach flu or influenza, it's all similar in that it's a viral infection meant to disrupt the functions of either the, the digestive system or the respiratory system. Usually transmitted through the air, the flu can make for a pretty miserable death for those who do not have proper treatment. Pneumonia, whooping cough, scarlet fever, mumps, and measles were all on the table as well in the Middle Ages. And we cannot forget about the classic plagues either. No, not necessarily the Black Death, though we will get to that in time. But a little-known fact is that there were a number of plagues throughout the Middle Ages that were devastating to the entire swaths of Europe, Africa, the Middle East, India, and the rest of Asia. For instance, the Plague of Justinian occurred in the Eastern Roman Empire around the year 541 and killed upwards of 10,000 per day. Quote, aftershocks, or recurrences of this plague, were experienced in the following years, and some estimates say... It killed millions. Constantinople ran out of space to bury them within the walls and were forced to stack up the dead corpses inside government buildings, or just left outside in the streets. And it wasn't just diseases that wreaked havoc in medieval communities either. Childbirth took a devastating toll on the medieval family. The loss of a wife and mother was a staggering blow. And it's no wonder, as pregnancy during the Middle Ages was steeped in a in a weird mixture of superstition, proto-science, and, well, just sprinkle in a bit more superstition. And that would make sense, as it was official church position that frowns upon, well, you know, the act itself. Not to mention that you have a bunch of male monks and priests dictating how pregnancy and childbirth should be handled. For instance, it was said that a woman who had just given birth was not allowed to look out of her window for six full weeks, or else every wagon that passed would steal a bit of luck with it. Or if a woman was to wear a belt, then her child would suffocate. 
where if a person had the audacity to cut a piece of bread for a woman with a knife or a fork, then the child would be blind. I've yet to find actual statistics, so I'm going to present the figures of the 17th century at upwards of 4% of women who died in childbirth across Europe. Shocking and disheartening, no doubt. But what's even sadder is the fact that we can safely assume that the number is probably higher, if not much higher, between the previous 1,000 years. And finally, where men were spared direct death from childbirth, women too were spared direct death from warfare, the battlefield. Almost exclusively, men were the casualties during warfare throughout the Middle Ages, and really up until the last century or so, to be fair. According to author Gustavus Adolphus, the Middle Ages saw its second deadliest century during the 13th century, estimating around 12% of Europeans were killed in battle. Now this is no wipe-of-the-brow moment. 12% of the estimated 40 million men in Europe at the time amounts to about 4.8 million deaths from warfare alone. Not that it's a competition, but... Just for a bit of perspective, compared with childbirth, warfare in the 13th century alone resulted almost four times more deaths than childbirth. Stunning statistics all around, no doubt. So with communities experiencing death in what can only seem like weekly or monthly, and even during certain periods, daily, the average medieval person would be obligated to dispose of that body. Ground burials were one of the more ancient forms of disposal and held deeply spiritual ties. Cremation, of course, is also pretty ancient, even used by the ancient Greeks. Rome held it as a common practice. Vikings altered it with, with more important people by setting a longboat aflame, and, and a stone with runes etched on it was placed at the side of the ashes while Hindus and some Buddhists allow the practice even today. It's not universally accepted to burn the body to ashes ceremonially, though, as evidenced by the complete ban on the practice by Judaism, Islam, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And as recently as 2016, the Vatican advises not cremating and spreading the ashes, because it would hinder God from raising the body in the end times. Immurement is another form of disposal. Immurement is simply the practice of placing a body in a mausoleum. Ancient Egyptians held this to be common practice for their leaders. Just think of King Tut. And speaking of King Tut, mummification is another method. This requires the draining of fluids and major organs in the process of pushing back on decomposition for as long as possible. Dissolution is the process of liquefying the body through the use of acids. Composting allows the body to break down by letting tiny microbes do the dirty work and allowing the carbon-based life form turn into soil for other carbon-based life forms to feed off of. Similar to composting it is exposure, which is just the practice of leaving a body out in the open to decompose. Similar to this, with a more spiritual attachment, is what's called sky burial, 
which is identical to exposure, but it incorporates the ritualistic devouring of the body by scavengers, like vultures. And then, of course, there's a burial at sea, which have been largely been attributed to the Vikings. Mass graves are an unfortunate atrocity seen all the way up into the last century. During plagues, they were referred to as plague pits. But natural disasters and warfare just saw the fastest disposal of corpses, as it was widely known that decomposition was not only an unwelcome sight, but it also brought with it other bad things, such as sickness and even death. This was large, largely attributed to demons and whatnot, but, but we can forgive the medieval mind for simply not having learned about germ theory at this point. And then there was dismemberment, the grisly practice of tearing off body parts while both alive and dead, and then the selling and ceremoniously displaying of said body part, be it an arm, a finger, a head, around the churches of Christendom, it was a pretty common practice. With all of this death and destruction to be seen and felt during the medieval period, it's no small wonder why a largely illiterate and religious population across the continent would begin to incorporate their deepest fears of death itself with the deepest fears of the implied unknown. That is, stories of a more spiritually sinister orientation. In the idyllic setting of eastern Yorkshire, near the modern town of Malton, not to be confused with Malden in Essex, where Britnoth squared off against Olaf Tryggvason in 991, lies a long-lost village dating back far earlier than the 11th century. Surrounded by fields with rows of trees separating patches of fertile soil, this village was nestled comfortably in this northern English scene. The fields were filled with sheep, though the occasional cow and pig and chicken could also be pointed out. The now-deserted village named Warham Percy seemed like the typical medieval village where everyone knew everyone and all of those residents simply did their best each day to see that they and theirs saw the next sunrise. But something occurred in the 11th century that seemed to change the culture of the village. People don't know exactly what it was, but something changed. In 2004, Researchers who investigated the church ruins and adjoining cemetery found something very strange. The bones had peculiar markings on them, like, like knife cuts, and one skull in particular had been charred by intense heat. Nowhere in the record does Waram Percy show up as a battlefield, and most peculiarly, Waram Percy was recorded in William the Conqueror's Domesday Book as just another northern English village. Scientists dove headfirst into this mystery and found that these bones weren't just from one event either. In fact, these bones, they were dated to anywhere from the 1000s to the 1300s. But they all consistently showed similar markings etched into them. It turns out that these bodies weren't actually buried whole. Some bodies had their had their heads forcibly removed from their shoulders, and others were missing hands, arms, legs, feet, and even more had clear knife cuts on their rib bones directly in front of the heart. In an article by the BBC in 2017, quote, Simon Mays, a human skeletal biologist at, his at Historic England, said, 
The idea that Waram Percy bones are the remains of corpses burnt and dismembered to stop them walking from their graves seems to fit the best evidence. If we are right, then this is the first good archaeological evidence we have for this practice. End quote. He goes on to say, It shows us a dark side of medieval beliefs and provides a, a graphic reminder of how different the medieval worldview of the world was from our own. Is this really the first bit of evidence, though? Maybe in England, but not elsewhere. An excavation in Roscommon, Ireland, dating back to the 700s, found two adult male skeletons lying next to one another. Now, it was believed that the plague was spread by corpses rising from the grave, eating the flesh of the dead, and breathing the foul, diseased stench around the homes of the infected, so the obvious solution would be to stop them from chewing on human flesh by stuffing a stone deep inside their mouths. These two men, one aged over 40 and the other a young man in his 20s, well, it wasn't just a stone. No, these were baseball-sized stones, thrust so violently into their mouths their jawbones were all but dislocated. Some have said this could also be a prevention of vampires, however the idea of vampires never held much traction until the Renaissance, so investigators have ruled out that possibility. The idea of the, quote, restless dead to the Irish and Gaelic Scottish was an old Celtic idea they called the slua. Could this be an even earlier instance of a community trying desperately to keep the dead, the restless dead, the slua, in the ground? Well, the Outer Hebrides, a series of rocky islands off the western coast of modern-day Scotland, also tells of a story dating back more than a millennia of villagers being driven out of their homes in the dead of night by a groaning undead horde of monstrous creatures. As they boarded their boats, some were caught and devoured, and as they bobbed in the midnight waves, they could just make out in the dim light of the moon dark figures mindlessly creeping through their tiny homes. But when the rooster crowed miraculously, these creatures walked back to their graves, never to be seen again. What did these people witness in the dead of night that disappeared upon daylight. In the end, whether the dead really rose from the grave or they stayed put in the place they were last left, one thing is for sure. The people of the Middle Ages believed that they could rise from the grave. They believed that they had been animated for some purpose, a purpose not always sanctioned by the Almighty. This was a deeply ingrained fact in the medieval mind, as is evident in one 12th century English monk's words. He says, These corpses of the dead moved by some kind of spirit leave their graves and wander around us as they cause terror and danger to the living before going back to their tombs that open up to receive them is not something which would be easily believed, but if not for the facts, 
it wouldn't be clear of exactly what happened to the abundant accounts of such events. I say, but if not for the facts, it wouldn't be clear of exactly what happened to the abundant accounts of such events. So what happened? What drove the folks in Ireland to shove baseball-sized stones into the mouths of two men in the 700s? What compelled the villagers in the Outer Hebrides to flee their homes in the middle of the night, boarding fishing boats, floating offshore for hours, and report what they saw to be loping creatures mindlessly wandering around their village? And what caused the seemingly simple life of Waram Percy to be suddenly upended in a way that would require its inhabitants to mutilate, decapitate, and dismember their fellow villagers before burial. <laughs>